This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rabkin. This is a show about craft, the writing life, and the themes that are present in a writer's work. Every interview is a journey. I don't really know where our conversation is going to go, but I do know that it's fascinating every time, and one way or another, we seem to get around to what it means to be human and how, through craft, that idea is made manifest. Thank you for joining me on this literary pilgrimage into the mind of one writer at a time. My interview today is with Susan Orlean, author of the essay collection On Animals. In all of the time I spent with him, I was very uncomfortable watching him rolling around with these 400-pound lions and thinking, yeah, they are your friends, but they are bottom line these primal creatures that, you know, they will kill you. We'll be back with Susan Orlean after these essential words. First, I want to say to you, thank you for listening. The episode you're about to tune into represents eight plus years of dedication and perseverance for producing this show. In addition to conversations that go into depth about a writer's work and obsessions, This show and every interview it features aims to embody the values of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection. I invite you to join me in this journey as a First Draft patron, which gives you access to cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, ad-free, pitch-free episodes, and writing tips from my guests. You can become a supporter by going to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash First Draft Writers. Any amount is welcome, but for $6 a month, you receive thank you gifts on a monthly basis. Plus, when you donate to First Draft, you are joining the community of writers and readers who support conversations like the one you are about to hear. With your donation, you are saying yes to continuing the space of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection that each show reaches to achieve. You are the scaffolding that holds up this platform that shares the insights and challenges of the writing life. So please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. And let's be honest, there is so much free content out there. In fact, what you are about to listen to is free but it is not without expense in hard costs and labor to make. Don't get me wrong, producing these interviews is indeed a labor of love, but there is an incredible amount of labor involved, time and effort, planning and schedule wrangling across time zones, from Colorado to New York to London to Tel Aviv to Auckland and back again. And it all adds up to the creation of this show and the archive, which has more than 300 episodes you can dive into. I put so much care and effort into this show, and I hope you can tell with every episode. The process begins when I select a book, contact the author, schedule the interview. Then I read the book, take notes, conduct research, have the conversation, and edit the show. This takes equipment, organization, more late nights than you can imagine, and a lot of heart and sweat to come to fruition each week. And there is no staff. I am the show from start to finish. I know you may not be in front of a computer right now, so why not write a note on your hand or set the alarm on your phone to remind yourself to donate to First Draft when you get home? 
Please beat the odds of having to listen to this seven times before you join the First Draft community. Go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Please stay tuned at the end of this show. I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell everyone you know to subscribe. And thank you for your support and for being here with me today, right now, in this moment, and on to the show. My guest today is Susan Orlean, author and staff writer for The New Yorker. She has written eight books of nonfiction, including the library book, Saturday Night, and The Orchid Thief. She also runs book club on literati and writes for television, including writing for the adaptation of her book, The Library Book, which tells the story of the Los Angeles Public Library fire in 1986. Her new book on animals is a collection of her essays and reporting on various species, including lions, tigers, whales, pigeons, mules, chickens, show dogs, and donkeys. In these essays, we meet a young girl having to leave her homing pigeon behind when her family moves, a mysterious woman in New Jersey who has 23 tigers, we learn more about the real life of whale movie star Free Willy, and a man who hugs lions. We began the discussion with me asking Susan Orlean if any of the essays changed her as a writer or thinker. They each presented different challenges, without a doubt. Um, and so I wouldn't say that one's, one specific one changed me as a writer versus the others, because each one was a very particular kind of challenge. When you're writing about creatures that don't speak, you're constantly coming up against some of the same challenges, which is you have a voiceless character in a story. So they each presented a a lot of challenges, and each of them presented the same challenge of how do you write about animals in a way that's both full of affection, but that doesn't sentimentalize them, that is both appreciative of them having a kind of existing essence and consciousness, but doesn't anthropomorphize them because a donkey is not a human, a whale is not a human. And you you don't want to slide into that kind of interpretation of the animals. So the tone of each of these presented the same issue. How do you write lovingly about animals, but not not in a way that's sentimental or that in, in, at the end of the day, reduces them to being basically animatronic toys because they're not. So that, that presented itself in each and every one of these stories. I will say that Writing about the tiger lady, the woman in New Jersey who had 27 pet tigers, um, it changed me as a thinker in a pretty profound way because until I wrote that story, I knew very little about some of the very dark facts about captivity and the zoo economy and issues that once I began learning about them, I realized that I suddenly had a very different feeling about patronizing zoos and um, animal entertainment. It, It really did change me. And I I have to say it's made me into a bit of a crusader on the, on this topic because once once you learn about it it's very hard to unlearn some of the facts that are pretty bleak. So that essay The Lady and the Tigers is about this woman in New Jersey and she was basically hoarding tigers which we can talk about animal hoarding cuz there were there were a few 
characters who were hoarding, and it's a very um, hard habit to break, you could say. And uh, what happened was that uh, you open up where in this suburban town in New Jersey, a tiger is walking through town and all these people see it and they're like, where is it from? Did it escape from the zoo? And it turns out that this they never figured out where the tiger came from. But this one woman, the, the, the bulk of your story is about this woman who has. I think she had 17 tigers. Like at one time she had 23, but all these, she had a few that were unaccounted for, which was worrisome in general and the conditions weren't good. And she, her neighbors, like it ended up being lawsuits with her neighbors because she had all these tigers. And it made me think both like how many tigers are in the neighborhood where I live because you don't you just don't know but also like her mindset that she felt like she was providing relief in some way it was a very complicated story um animal hoarding is a multi-pronged issue that um is unfortunately not as uncommon as you might wish it were. And it's a mental health issue. It's not merely, oh, I don't have room for all the dogs that I have. It's almost always a subset of some OCD behavior, some, you know, it's it's a compulsion. And the people who hoard animals often begin losing the ability to really take care of their animals well. So it's not just a matter of saying, I love dogs so much, I I can't help myself, I want another dog and another dog. At some point, animal hoarders are no longer taking care of their animals in a healthy way. So they've lost track of even the idea of loving these kinds of animals because they're keeping them in terrible conditions. The One of the most shocking facts that I learned was that animal hoarding or animal hoarders have a recidivism rate of 100%. So you take this woman in New Jersey who had over 20 tigers, the state intervenes, removes the tigers from her, and you have a number of problems. One is where do they go? and We don't have a lot of good places for tigers to go. Most zoos have as many tigers as they need and want. Um, They go to animal refuges, which are a whole other subject. Many of them are run by people who are also animal hoarders. So you're sort of out of the frying pan into the fire. And then you add to this mess the fact that these animal hoarders will go back and acquire animals again. And the problem is it's very easy to get animals. It's incredibly easy to get animals. It's shockingly easy to get animals. When I was writing the story, my first question was, well, how would you even get a tiger that seems like this insurmountable task, of course, nobody could ever get a tiger. Well, unfortunately, it's very easy to get a tiger. And I I hesitate to even say how you do it, but it took me about one minute to find myself in a situation where I could have ordered a tiger. Why is that? I mean, that seems incredible. Well, rules on the acquisition and distribution of exotic animals is a state issue. And some states basically don't regulate it at all. You're a person living in New Jersey and you want a tiger, all you have to do is go to one of these states that has very lax regulation around having tigers and you get one, and they're not even expensive. It was one of the most shocking pieces of reporting I've ever done because suddenly I thought, well, wait a minute, if you're a person who's obsessed with tigers, you can actually satisfy your obsession very easily. I think most people think, well, 
come on, you can't even get a tiger. So you're a bit of a kook who loves tigers. Society will have made it difficult for you to get one. Well, unfortunately, society has not made it difficult for you to get one. And people acquire them all the time. In this instance, she was living in an area that had been quite rural. And over time, it became more and more developed. But when she moved there, and it was a rural area, she could keep these tigers and nobody noticed. She didn't have any neighbors who lived nearby. It was very, you know, laissez-faire. I'm not going to look in on your property. You don't look in on my property. Over time, this area, which is not too far from Trenton, New Jersey, developed and basically became suburban. And suddenly you have neighbors who are living right next door to you and who either catch a glimpse of a tiger or smell the rotting carcasses that you've been feeding them and have young children around and they begin worrying about, wait a minute, this lady has a bunch of tigers. So the entire episode um, came to light because this tiger was walking through the suburban town she never admitted it was her tiger, but there was really very little question that it was hers. I mean, there was one other facility that had tigers, which was Six Flags, and all of their tigers were accounted for. So unless there was yet another person in this suburban New Jersey area who had tigers, it was undoubtedly one of hers. You know, what was interesting, though, was that one of the... I don't know if it was a police investigator or someone said all her tigers are not in good shape. They're, they're dirty and they're mangy and that this tiger was in pretty good shape. I thought that was interesting. That, yeah. And, and that was the one clue in this that made me hesitate because I saw her tigers and I saw her facility and it was dirty. It, it was a mess. And I saw one of her tigers from a distance, so I can't vouch for all of them and how they all look. But the state investigator was the one who said, no, her tigers are really dirty and um, skinny and scrawny. And this one looked really well fed and was clean. And it made me think, well, God, maybe there's someone else who has tigers in the area, which is a pretty bizarre thought. But it could be. Uh, unfortunately, it became very trendy for drug dealers to have an exotic animal as a watchdog, a lion or a cheetah or a tiger. And as I said, it's not hard to get them. So you get a tiger, you have it to freak people out when they come over to your house or scare them or however you use this animal. and. What it could have been that this animal escaped from someone else's house who would never dream of notifying the authorities. Or it could have been someone who had a tiger and the tiger got too big and too nasty and they just let it loose. I mean, people do weird things for sure. And if you have a tiger that you are not licensed to have, and it's getting out of control, I can see where your next logical step would be, well, I'll just open the back door. I mean, if you're a totally irresponsible person, but that avoids having to notify authorities or go to a zoo and say, I've got a tiger, because then someone's going to say, well, how do you come to have a tiger? You shouldn't have a tiger. So it, it was, I mean, nonetheless, what this did was reveal to the authorities that this woman, Joan Byron Marisek, had far more tigers than she was permitted to have. So whether it was her tiger or not became irrelevant. What became relevant was what is she doing with 27 tigers? Was she open to having you talk to her? Not at all. She didn't speak to me. And in, in the very beginning, 
I went expecting that she would want to talk to me and tell her side of the story because she had been vilified in the press. And I thought, well, she'll take this opportunity to explain herself. But she was very, very guarded, very paranoid about any publicity, and she refused to talk to me. I came home from New Jersey, and I said to my editor, the story's falling through because she won't talk to me. And he said, write around her. Figure out a way to write the story without talking to her. You, there's plenty there you can write even if she won't talk to you. And the fact that she refused to talk to me probably characterized her more than if she had talked to me. So it, it was not ideal. I really, really <clears throat> did want to hear her side of the story. And I did get a lot of her side of the story from the court filings, but she never, never spoke to me at all. So you wrote another story about big cats called The Lion Whisperer about a man who sort of like switched his whole position on wild animals and having wild animals. This one took place in South Africa and it's about a man named Kevin Richardson who would hug lions and ended up at this lion park and kind of started off in a place where he believed kind of in the captivity and believed in them mating so people could come touch and pet the cubs to becoming an advocate for their wildness and for wild lands for them to live in because in Africa there actually isn't enough space for them to live in. And that's quite a journey, I think, philosophically for someone to come and to write about his mental changes? Well, I think that it was rather brave of him to kind of acknowledge that he had been very much part of the problem. And rather than pretending that he had never had any part in that, he, he was very frank about moving through this very specific process of thinking and going from loving the idea of being able to hold and pet lions and then working at Lion Park, which is a facility where you pay for the pleasure of holding a lion cub or taking a walk with a lion cub on a leash. And like a lot of uh, animal entertainment, the moment itself is marvelous. That's why people do it. Um, and a lot of times, either you don't want to think about what it means, or you simply aren't educated to know what the outcome of this really means. And in his case, he had a, a sort of shocking revelation and it changed him dramatically. Um, it, he wanted to continue caring for the lions that he had sort of raised from the time they were cubs, but he felt very strongly that the very common tourist attraction of petting lion cubs was something that really had to be discontinued. And there's a lot of money in that. There's a lot of tourism money that goes towards having these close encounters with wild animals. And unfortunately, the, the, the bottom line is that we will all have to give up this kind of dreamy opportunity if we're really to be moral about what happens in the lives of these wild animals. And I was just as guilty as I'm sure millions of people are who've participated in something like this. I was at a county fair about 10 years ago and 
you know, they have farm animals that you can pet. And they also, for an additional $10, had a lion cub that you could hold in your lap and pet. And you can imagine how long the line was for this. And I got right into that line thinking, oh my God, I get to pet a lion cub. This is incredible. Well, so I'm not wagging my finger and trying to suggest that I'm so virtuous and that I would never do such a thing. I was really ignorant. Now that I know, and it doesn't take that much to put two and two together, but that's not what we do. We respond to the kind of immediate pleasure at hand. I pet this lion cub. It was really exciting and cool. And, and, you know, I love doing it. And only when I learned or pieced together the reality that these lion cubs that were being handled and petted could never be released into the wild. They're, they're ruined in the sense of being able to adapt to wildlife. And secondly, they are in very short order, too big and too dangerous to be petted by people at a county fair. So what happens to them? And we, we don't really like thinking about it because the, the answers aren't very pleasant. Anyone who has had the enjoyment of petting a lion cub probably would be quite horrified to learn that most of them end up in canned hunts in these fake safaris in Texas and Georgia where people pay $5,000 or $10,000 and a lot of times the animals are sedated so that they're easier to be shot. And that is an animal that has become accustomed to humans and probably doesn't even have natural instincts to protect itself. Well, you don't think about that when there's an adorable lion cub at the county fair. And Kevin Richardson didn't think about it. And now he's really on the other side of, of the industry. And I, I found the whole topic pretty unsettling um, when you really follow the story to its inevitable conclusion, which is really not a very happy one. Yeah, it's it's interesting because he, I'm not sure about Joan and her, if she hugged tigers, but he would hug his lions. And I just kept thinking about that documentary, Grizzly Man, and how even if you've had a bond with a lion your whole life, which is different than Grizzly Man because these were wild animals, but still it's like that is a wild animal whose most primordial instinct is to eat. So it blew, it blows my mind. I would be terrified to hug an animal. Well, I've got to say in all the time I spent with him, I was very uncomfortable watching him rolling around with these 400 pound lions and thinking, yeah, they are your friends, but, and the fact is they are bottom line, these primal creatures that, you know, they will kill you. There's nothing. And he was very, very clear about the fact that these are extremely dangerous for anyone but him, that they know him, they've acclimated to him. He has a rapport with them, but I couldn't walk into that lion enclosure. And one of the people who visited him a couple of years ago got killed by one of the lions. They're not tame. They're not... And, you know, most of the big cats and, you know, very dangerous creatures that are, for instance, used in movies, they may be um, accustomed to being handled by their trainer and wouldn't necessarily attack their trainer. 
but they can't really be around anyone else because they're still having their brains set on eat when they see a human and that these people for whatever reason have developed a different rapport with them, but they're not a tame animal. Yeah. I mean, if I was wild and a chocolate bar came into my enclosure, I would definitely eat it. And, you know, in this case, they've learned that one chocolate bar is really a, it looks like a chocolate bar, but it's really another lion. But it, it certainly can happen that one day they forget. And Siegfried and Roy, who were tiger trainers, famously, you know, for years and years and years in Las Vegas doing their show, and they were um, lauded as being the most remarkable tiger trainers and um, could hug and roll and have their tigers romp around with them one day, one of the tigers just lost it and attacked. It was either Siegfried or Roy. I can't remember. And he he didn't kill him, but he absolutely devastated him and he was never normal again. Joan Marisett, um, her tigers attacked her husband and injured him very gravely. So, you know, you might have this relationship with these wild animals that no one else can have, and including you, if the circumstances are right, things can go off. And honestly, while I certainly don't celebrate anyone being injured, there is something almost reassuring to think these animals are still animals and they still look at people as a food source and they haven't been denatured so completely that they're zombies. They, they still react to people the way they're really meant to react to people. It's interesting, too, because you were mentioning earlier about the the lion cubs and the difficulties of putting these animals back into the wild. Essentially, you can't. But one of your essays was also about Free Willy and the huge effort that people made for one this one orca, which I'm not reducing it at all to one orca. It's amazing how much money went into freeing this animal, but that... Hopefully, he's he's still out there in, in the wild. Unfortunately, he's not. And what happened after I wrote the story is he had been out in the wild, um, although while he was in the wild, he came in very close to shore and was playing with kids and allowing himself to be handled. So he wasn't acting like a wild whale. And then he returned to his enclosure in Iceland. He then unfortunately got pneumonia and passed away. Um, so he never, he, he enjoyed a certain brief period of freedom, a certain brief period of his life where he got to decide where he wanted to go, but he never lived as a free whale. I also think Part of the point of that story was um, to raise, not in a finger-pointing way, but just to raise the fact of the millions and millions of dollars that had gone towards trying to free one whale. Um, And, you know, people gave that money of their own free will, and they were doing something that on the face of it was really honorable, but it it grew out of proportion in a way that was, um, I think a lot of people would have said, wait a minute, this amount of money going to free one whale could have been spent bettering, you know, in a, in a more widespread way to better, the lives of 
more whales. Um, and the, the reason it was a particularly thorny question is that many, many people and many whale um, experts never believed he could be released into the wild. He had been in captivity since he was a youngster. And um, you irreductibly alter an animal's instincts by having them in captivity. Um, among other things, they no longer have a family and whales travel in pods and they're very family oriented. So he no longer had a family. Um, the chance of him surviving in the wild would be reduced considerably if he didn't have other whales around him. So um, we've certainly seen a lot of animals go feral. You know, cats are feral and dogs can live feral, but they're not returning to, you know, if you let a dog loose, it's not going to join a pack of coyotes. Um, if you let a cat loose, it'll learn how to eat out of garbage cans and live as a semi-wild thing, but they're still domesticated animals. We've had some success releasing birds into the wild, um, in, birds that have been injured, and um, when there have been efforts to repopulate certain species of birds that have become endangered, peregrine falcons, you know, they were hatched in captivity and then released, and they seem to have done really well. For some reason, uh, that hasn't been the case with mammals, and the, the um, success rate doesn't seem great, particularly if you have an animal that was brought into captivity at a very young age so that, you know, and, and the thing with Keiko is he was very lazy. He loved getting fed. He didn't really like hunting for his own food. You know, he was a, a pet. He had become a pet. He loved people. He was very comfortable around people. So that's not a good quality for a wild whale. Chances are you're going to get in big trouble and, you know, come up to a boat and get stuck in the rudder or have some outcome that's not very good. So many of these stories were about the way that we use animals. And um, there's definitely a sadness to that. Like I'm thinking about the mules, all of the mules that got sold basically through mule dealers and um, to to the U.S. government and got got airlifted basically to Afghanistan to help the troops and how so many of them weren't even fit for the job that they got hired for. And so most of them are probably you know, we're probably didn't even survive much, much time in Afghanistan. Do you want to share more about that story or, or just the general concept of the ways that we use them or b both? Yeah, well, I'm very interested in animals that we use and animals uh, with, with whom we've sort of struck a bargain. We care for them and they work for us. To me, that is such a fascinating thing to imagine that we, without the capacity of language, have a, a kind of rapport with these beasts and manage to communicate with them in a way that is utilitarian. And I find it really, really interesting. And I loved writing about donkeys and writing about mules because unlike horses that are very glamorous and at this point they're mostly used for, for hobby purposes, mules and donkeys are still really work animals. I mean, in the U.S. they're largely hobby animals, but in the rest of the world they do a lot of work. The story of these mules was so crazy um, I had heard about this insane 
army project during the war in Afghanistan. And Afghanistan has very uh, rudimentary roads that are, in many cases, too rough for even armored vehicles and jeeps. They, they're narrow dirt roads up into the mountains. So the best way to travel in those areas is with a don donkeys or mules. They're really kind of the only way you can get around. The U.S. Army came up with this idea that they would supply the Afghani army when, during the war against the Soviet Union, and the U.S. was supplying the Mujahideen with arms and, you know, equipment to fend off the Soviets, and they wanted to have a way to carry these anti-aircraft guns into the mountains. And they're heavy, but they can be carried by an animal. And rather than using the little donkeys that they have in Afghanistan, the army came up with this idea of getting American mules, which are bigger than donkeys. They're the hybrid offspring of a donkey and a mule. And I mean, a donkey and a horse. So they're a lot bigger than donkeys and presumably a lot stronger. And many people feel they're smarter and, but they have all of the same ability to navigate these rough roads. I don't know who in the army thought this was a good idea. Someone thought it was a good idea. So they went to Tennessee and started buying up mules, um, which delighted all of the mule dealers in Tennessee because they really didn't have much of a market at that point. I mean, there were, they had a lot of mules and not a lot of people who needed them. So they sold them to the army for a lot of money. These mules were flown to Afghanistan. Talk about crazy use of money. Um, and they arrived in Afghanistan and they were much bigger than what the Afghanis were used to managing. I mean, they're twice as big as donkeys. And also everyone in Tennessee was selling their most difficult mule. I mean, nobody wanted to sell the mules that they had that were their good mules. So they were selling their ornery mules and their mules who refused to take direction. And so these, this is what arrived in Afghanistan. They were, in fact, one of the Mujahideen uh, commanders who I spoke to said, you know, they couldn't even get saddles on them. They were like completely wild animals that nobody could handle. And they were very big and, you know, ungovernable. My guess, and, and in addition, and this was a very sad part of the story, they had no immunity to local equine diseases. So many of them got sick and died right away. And the rest probably were either eaten or just set loose to be predated, you know, get eaten by predators. Um, but really none of them ended up doing their job. And it was never attempted again. I'm trying, I'm, my memory will fail me right now, but it was something like 1200 mules that were sent there. And it was a complete fiasco. Now using mules in the military is not a fiasco. They, they have been incredibly valuable and they're smart and they're strong and they're very easy to take care of. They don't eat a lot. Um, they're, they're wonderful animals. And the army is sort of rediscovering their usefulness, but shipping over a bunch of unbroken mules to Afghanistan was not a good example of how you can use mules in the military. So it was a crazy, crazy army effort that um, I would say rated a, a 
an F minus in its effectiveness. As you were putting this collection together, because these were stories you wrote over time and for different outlets, did you discover themes or emotions that you had about these that you didn't necessarily see when they stood on their own? Absolutely. I I think that that was one of the great pleasures about putting them together and seeing some of, for instance, the issue of captivity and the the kind of cursed nature of captivity, which came up repeatedly in this piece. The, um, the, the, this balance that I referred to a moment ago of striking a, a kind of agreement that there's this world of animals that work for us and, and, the struggle emotionally about how we should feel about those animals. They're not pets. We all know how we feel about our pets. That's easy. You know, they live in our home with us. We love them. We dote on them. And in many instances, treat them just the way we would treat a human family member. But these other animals that fall into this gray area, these animals that are the worker bees that populate our world. Even even in the modern world, we still very much have these animals that work for us. How how are we supposed to feel about them? And that was um, a theme that I kept coming back to. What, What is our responsibility to them? Or what's the emotion that feels right? for animals that aren't pets, but, but they work for us and they count on us treating them a certain way. And, and to me, that was fascinating. I think also all of these stories were very much about people. Um, there isn't a story in the book that was strictly about an animal. Um, these were all animals through the human gaze and um, are experience of them in the world and what it tells what it reveals about being human not just what is it what does it reveal about animals but what does it say about the way we are in the world one of them that that i really loved was the one about the carrier pigeons um it was it was a story about a young girl, I think she was 13, um, Sedona, uh, who lived in Massachusetts and was like maybe one of the youngest carrier pigeon racers um, in at least her community, but she was moving and the carrier pigeons are so strongly linked to home that she couldn't bring them with her. And I don't know, I got this sense and I think even in, in your essay, you they don't know 100% why they fly back home, but that the pigeons, and it, I'm probably totally putting my values on them, they seem to really like to fly like that, to go far away and come home. There's got to be, and in a way, I love the fact that we can't really explain it. There remains mystery in this. First of all, they're ability to find their way home when they're taken hundreds of miles away they can still find their way home and it's been studied and studied and studied and many different theories have been examined and discarded and we really have never quite put our finger on how they have this magical capacity you can blindfold them, keep them in a dark room, take them 600 miles away, and they can find their way back. So they're not looking out and recording landmarks, which in itself would be amazing. But it's something beyond that. It's some something so deeply instinctual that no matter what you do to try to thwart it, they can still do it. Um, but the sadness for me was 
discovering this reality, which is that they they really have one home. The these racing pigeons, they learn one home. So if you are moving, you you can't say, well, now this is our new home. You can, if you go to a great deal of effort, it, it can be done with some birds, but it's a painstaking process that doesn't always work and not most people don't have the time or patience to even try. So what it means is if you're living in Boston, as Sedona did, and you're moving out to Marlboro, which is a suburb 20 miles away, and you let your homing pigeons loose, and normally they would fly around and come back to your house, the house they're going to come back to is the one you sold to some stranger in 20 miles away in downtown Boston. They don't understand the fact that you've moved. So they're bonded not to you, but to this place. And they may have a lot of affection for the people who train them. There, no doubt. It's not at all like dogs that can scent, you know, and smell their master and find their master even in a strange place. Pigeons are keyed into a location. And Americans move on the average of once every five years. So having homing pigeons has this built-in sort of tragic element, which is if you love them and you love having them, the only thing you can do when you move is keep them caged forever. And the only, you know, you can do it humanely, I suppose, by having a very big aviary so they can fly around a little bit, but you can never do what you did previously, which is to let them loose 10 miles away, 50 miles away, and let them fly home and have that freedom. So Sedona was moving and she didn't have an aviary and wasn't going to have a nice big aviary. And even at their very best, it's sad to think of birds that are going to remain caged. Um, so she would, she was giving them away and hoping that they would go to people who did have big aviaries that could at least give them a comfortable life, even if they were no longer going to have that life of freedom uh, where they could fly in races and be set loose 600 miles away from home. Okay. Can you share a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? Sure. I'm going to read um, a short section from Slouching Toward Bethlehem, which um, is, of course, by Joan Didion's collection of her essays. And, you know, nobody can imitate her. Um, but she has inspired untold scores of writers, including me. So, and I could kind of pick almost anything from this book, but um, I'm going to pick a passage from the beginning of Some Dreamers of the Golden Dream, which is one of her most famous essays, and it's, um, it's actually the first one in the collection. This is a story about love and death in the golden land and begins with the country. The San Bernardino Valley lies only an hour east of Los Angeles by the San Bernardino Freeway, but is in certain ways an alien place, not the coastal California of the subtropical twilights and the soft westerlies off the Pacific, but a harsher California haunted by the Mojave just beyond the mountains, devastated by the hot, dry Santa Ana wind that comes down through the passes at 100 miles an hour and winds through the eucalyptus windbreaks and works on the nerves. October is the bad month for the wind, the month when breathing is difficult and the hills blaze up spontaneously. 
There has been no rain since April. Every voice seems a scream. It is the season of suicide and divorce and prickly dread wherever the wind blows. Do you want to share more about why you chose that? Well, I think one of Didion's most marvelous uh, abilities is to conjure place both visually but also emotionally. I mean, this goes from a quick physical description that's not even that extensive, but it segues very quickly into describing the emotional quality of the place. And I think that that is what sets her apart, that she's always operating on both the concrete reality of of what she's describing and then also the emotional and psychological quality of what she's describing. And I feel like I learned so much reading her books and kind of taking in that, that, uh, that freedom that she has to take you very quickly away from the concrete and into the more psychological can you read something you wrote that was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft? Sure. Um, well, one of the pieces in the book is about taxidermy. And it was tricky because a lo- I knew that a lot of people might find taxidermy kind of um, nauseating or they might they just might be squeamish. And in a book about living things, this was writing about dead things. So I, I felt like I, I had to lure people gently into the subject um, and not have the fact that it was, not have it be ghastly, um, but rather uh, bring people into the, the sort of circus quality that, I went to a taxidermy convention and there, it was certainly bizarre, but it also had this crazy circus-like quality of having all of these animals um, kind of circulating around this hotel. And it was very nutty. Um, so it was kind of funny and it, it gave me a chance to bring some whimsy into a subject that I was afraid people might be turned off immediately. So I wrote it with that in mind. And I worked very, very hard on this for, um, to give it a rhythmic quality that I felt would help people get lured into the piece. Uh, The piece is called Lifelike. As soon as the 2003 World Taxidermy Championships opened, the heads came rolling in the door. There were foxes and moose and freeze-dried wild turkeys, mallards and buffalo and chipmunks and wolves, weasels and buffleheads and bobcats and jackdaws, big fish and little fish and razorback boar. The deer came in herds, in carloads and on pallets, dozens and dozens of white tail and roe, half deer and whole deer and deer with deformities, sneezing and glowering and nuzzling and yawning, chewing on apples and nibbling leaves. There were millions of eyes, boxes and bowls of them, some as small as a lentil and some as big as an egg. There were animal mannequins, blank-faced and brooding, earless and eyeless and utterly bald ghostly gray antelopes and spectral pine martens and black-bellied tree ducks from some other world. Thank you. Where do you write? I'm very lucky. I have a little writing studio that stands separately from my house, but it's only um, maybe 100 yards from my house, so I don't have a long commute. But it's my space. It's my own space that 
Um, my husband and son are only allowed in with my permission. I, I feel I have a sense of, um, privacy and ownership of it. That's really irreplaceable. And it also happens to be lovely. It's a, a glass box, um, and it's surrounded by trees. So I feel a little bit like I'm in a tree house. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? I, my favorite thing to do to get away from writing is to go for a hike. And I'm lucky because in Los Angeles, there are a million places to either go for a beautiful walk or a hike that are, you know, 10 minutes from my house. I like to get away from writing to do something physical. And if I don't want to actually go for a hike, I, I usually garden because again, it's something physical. I like to shut off my brain and just, I guess, sweat. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? My first reader is my husband. I, I feel, I trust his taste and I also feel really comfortable showing him things even when they're in their rawest, most unpolished state. I'm not comfortable showing anyone else work that's that early. Um, but I, I feel like I can show him things that are just ragged. And it's not that he won't ever criticize. He, he certainly does, but it helps me just feel like someone's reading it and saying, okay, I see where you're going. Keep going. So he's a, he's a great constructive criticizer. How have you dealt with rejection? Not very well. Um, I am highly sensitive and I think in my writing career, I've mercifully had very little rejection, but the downside of that is that I haven't had a lot of practice with it. And I haven't learned that you can have a rejection or a disappointment and then tomorrow's a new day. Instead, it feels like the end of the world for me. The only way that I can really handle it is to sort of allow myself to be immersed in the feeling of rejection and then shut it down and cut it off and not allow myself to even think about it anymore. It's almost like when you have a cavity and you keep poking at it with your tongue. And then if you know what's good for you, you will not touch it again. And so that's sort of my approach. And what is your favorite word? Well, I thought long and hard about this. And I realized that when my sister and I were young, we loved certain words and we would kind of collect words, words that we liked saying, words that delighted us. And then we would get very um, funny about not allowing ourselves to use those words because they were too special. And we would get really mad at each other if we heard one or the other heard the other using one of these special words that really was too good to use in normal conversation. And the word, and you'll laugh because these were not words that are fancy or complex or anything, but they were words that became on our list of words that you shouldn't use much because they were too special. And the one that was number one on the list was the word slice. So even now I have to say, when I'm asked, what's my favorite word, it has to be slice because this was the top of our special, special word list. Thank you so much for your time and for sharing thoughts on this beautiful book. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. It was such a pleasure to talk to you. If you like today's show with Susan Orlean, author of the essay collection on animals, check out our first interview where we talked about her nonfiction book, The Library Book, which chronicles a devastating fire in 1986 at the Los Angeles Public Library. 
You can find that interview in the entire First Draft archive of more than 350 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, books, and more. Join me as I reach for honesty, vulnerability, connection, curiosity, and insights on craft with each episode. I can't tell you enough how much each and every single dollar counts to keeping the show alive. The first tier of support is just $6 a month. So please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Evie Wild, Lan Samantha Chang, Thritti Umrigar, and Jacqueline Michard. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.